Money FM 89.3, the best of Saturday mornings. International News Review. It's that time again, folks, but this time, Steve Okin is joining us from a hotel room in Manila. How are you, Steve? I would say it, it, it truly is the International News Review. And I can assure you they do not maintain lane discipline in Manila. <laughs> How's the traffic up there, my friend? Oh, it is awful. I mean, you, literally, I mean, you, just, you work around traffic because it's so, so bad. Oh, okay. Sorry to hear that. So, so bad. All right, we've got to start with something a little bit more serious. Obviously, tragic, tragic news and scenes coming out of Hawaii due to the wildfires. The death toll is rising daily. More thousands are still missing. An entire historic town of Lahaina, if, apologies if I mispronounce that, has been wiped out. Steve, it's a tragedy. What, what's the latest? Well, I mean, it, the latest is that this tragedy isn't going to be the last one. Uh, and so it is just, look, the climate crisis is here. Uh, you're not going to, it's hard to say if, but for the climate crisis, this wouldn't have happened because there were a lot of contributing factors to this. Uh, some of it is development in the wrong places. Some of it is uh, the invasiveness of species, which burn faster than, than um, the natural environment would burn. But of course, it's, it's the climate crisis too. So when you throw drought on top of that, when you throw increasing intensity of storms on top of that, you have just this awful, awful disaster where, I mean, right now the, you know, the death toll is under 100, but, but people imagine it's going to go a lot higher because they haven't even started to look inside the thousands. I think it's, it's over more than a thousand of burned buildings. So we're just going to have to figure out how do you mitigate the risk going forward and then how do we decarbonize? And those are two very difficult things to do. I mean, Hawaii is known as a popular tourist destination, and this is, you know, one of the deadliest fires in modern U.S. history. So can we expect authorities to now step in and say climate change is the change needs to happen now? Well, there's two things. One, you've, you've got the authorities have to come in, but that anything we do now is not going to make the climate better for it, the foreseeable future. I mean, look, this year was, you know, literally there were days which were the hottest days in the history of Earth. Um, and you know what? Next year, you're going to have even hotter days. And the year after that, you're going to have even hotter days. So some of what we're going to have to do is, is, you know, on that legal, regulatory, uh, legislative side, but some of it and more of it is going to be what we do as, as people, what we do as businesses, and how we mitigate the damage that can come and how we prevent additional carbon from being put into the environment, which is only going to make this exponentially worse. Well, it does seem interesting to me, Steve, that climate scientists, climate advocates are being quite critical of, of news groups, news agencies, for not making that clearer connection to climate change. I'm just looking here. Catherine Hayhoe, the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy, is in no doubt. She says global heating is causing vegetation to dry out, priming it as fuel for an outbreak of fire. It's not the only reason, but it is a key reason why these fires in Hawaii are spreading so quickly, which ties in nicely with what you're doing in the Philippines. I mean, you are literally putting your money where your mouth is. You're involved with various ESG groups and panels up in the Philippines. What's going on up there and what's the mood in Manila right now? 
Well, look, the Philippines, at least under one study I've seen, is the country that is going to be hit the hardest from the climate crisis because you have a country that, one, you have rising sea levels, so that is going to impact the country. At the same time, you have increasing participation, in increasing um, storms. You have an increasing intensity of storms, so you have terrible flooding. You don't have the infrastructure in place that, that is going to mitigate it yet. So basically what businesses need to do, and this is what you know I've been meeting with various businesses this week here, is to things. One is how do you how do you you know mitigate the risk that that is coming. So for example, if you're going to build a new factory, do you build that factory in one location or do you build it in another location that is going to be less prone to flooding, um, less prone to sea rise? So now where you never took that into account when you you know, when you say, where am I going to build a building? Where am I going to build a factory, a warehouse, a, a hotel, whatever it may be, you would look at cost. You'd look at, you know, maybe you're looking at foot traffic. Maybe you're looking at, are your competitors there or not? Maybe you're looking at the local economy. Now you have to look at the climate. And maybe that's going to drive more decisions than anything else. So that's one. And then the second thing businesses are trying to do is figuring out how do we decarbonize, even though they're, the law doesn't require us to do so. So we switched. Can we put solar panels on, on the roofs of our warehouses to get renewable energy that way? Um, can we reduce the amount of plastic in our business? Because that is going to have a large impact on decarbonization of, of, of the business, both directly in, in its supply chain. So those are the types of things that businesses are working on. But the big thing is, how do you deal with, with the crisis that's, that's upon us? Yeah. And last point on that, Steve, and I have no idea what the answer is to this, but when you think of the Philippines and particularly Hawaii, they are popular tourist destinations. People come from all over the world for their beaches and so on. So already there's a slight hypocrisy there, isn't there? The countries that are suffering most are also the countries that, if you like, in inverted commas, need those carbon emissions to bring people to their tourism economy. How do you balance one against the other? Well, at some point, there, it, it, the, the, the market is going to balance it for you because are you going to, if you're a, you know, if you're a holiday traveler, are you going to book a holiday in a place saying, well, you know what, there's increasing chances my holiday is going to get canceled because of fire or because of flooding or storms? Are you going to be booking ski vacations when there's no snow? And so are you going to have to start going to different places? So you're going to, you don't have a choice. And you can't say, well, there's, you know, it, it, it's the, the market is going to drive behavior of your customers, and therefore it's going to have to drive your behavior. And you already see it coming now where investors are walking away uh, from certain, you know, resorts because the risk of, of flooding, excessive storms, uh, beach erosion, whatever it is, 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 makes it a bad investment. And that's that's what's going to make the changes right now. And it's not going to be the government. And the thing we have to worry about, and, and this is, the you know, which I thought you were going to go in this direction, is that if people start saying, well, look, it's only going to get worse and worse, then I'm not going to do anything. Mm. And then you get climate crisis fatigue. And then people stop protesting. They stop 
you know, pushing for changes, and then we're going to be even worse off. Uh, that's actually happening now in the UK. Uh, without going into too much detail, uh, there was an unexpected by-election shock. It was Boris Johnson's old seat, and one of the issues was that they were going to raise uh, fees on carbon emissions in cars, and people felt enough already. Mm-hmm. And if that's happening now, you think, well, how? It's a story we're going to keep coming back to, Steve, unfortunately. But let's let's move it along now. We're talking U.S. politics, but for a welcome change, we're not talking the presidential candidate. We're talking the actual president. President Biden wants new or proposes new restrictions on China tech investment. Tell us about why. Well, this is the, the, what the U.S. is trying to figure out is how do you mix economics and trade and investment with national security. And the United States uh, believes that U.S. investment going into China is harming national security. Now, that used to be – so that was, that's always been a case where you wanted to restrict it, but it used to be relatively easy to do. And so the U.S. would say, well, we're not going to allow the export of dual-use equipment or military equipment in and of itself to a country like China. But now there is so much more that goes into national security other than military equipment. And so the Biden administration is grappling with how do we keep the U.S. ahead when it comes to these key technologies? How do we protect our national security? How do we protect human rights? and not disrupt or decouple the U.S. from China economically because it's not in the U.S. interest to do that. And so that's what the Biden administration did. They came out with an executive order where they are targeting where U.S. investment will be banned going into China. And it's, it's both with a, an eye on, na- on, on human rights and an eye on national security. And they've proposed banning uh, or restricting investment into three specific industries, quantum computing, semiconductors, and artificial intelligence. But is the U.S. saying this is, you know, in the name of national security just an, an excuse? Is it more, is it really for national security or is it more for the U.S. trying to beat China in this whole tech race? Well, I can be both, I think. Um, and certainly uh, China is making the case that this is about uh, the U.S. trying to maintain control, uh, to keep China down, uh, to restrict Chinese advancement, uh, at the, to, to keep the U.S. The, the top economy in the world. So that's certainly the, the argument that is being made against this. Um, It's certainly the argument being made in China. And what the U.S. is trying to show is that we are not trying to decouple, but we are trying to Mm de-risk. And we will look for areas and only those areas that that, that put us, the United States, at risk. And that's why this ban is relatively narrow, um, narrower than most people thought it was going to be. It also only covers active investments. So if, if you are a passive investor, if you're just buying stock in a Chinese company um, and you don't have any say in how that company is being managed, it doesn't ban that. So they have tried to, 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 to keep this order as narrow as possible to try and say, no, we're not trying to do this for economic reasons. We're not trying to do this for political reasons. We're doing this only for national security reasons. How will U.S. investors and even investors in this part of the world react to this news, do you think? 
Well, it's early days. So as you as you as you mentioned, Neil, this is a proposed uh, executive order or the executive order is out. But the Treasury Department just came out with 80 questions that it is asking for comment on on how to implement this regulation. So what does it mean for existing investments? Who does this apply to? Does it apply only to, to U.S. companies out of the U.S.? Does it apply to the branch offices of, of U.S. companies in Singapore? Does it apply to a Singapore company if it has U.S. investment? So there's all of these questions that have to get answered. Um, and so until we know what those, how this is going to be implemented, and this is going to be oh, more than a year away probably, it, then you can start to answer that question. But this is, it's something the Biden administration is trying to walk that fine line between when does de-risking become decoupling. Mm. Um, but, but there's no doubt that, that, that the U.S. sees these three areas, and we'll talk about AI I know later, but, but quantum computing, semiconductors, and AI as critical, and that the U.S. needs to continue to invest itself in those. The U.S. needs to continue to progress in those, and it needs to not do anything to help China do that. Well, let's stay with fragile U.S.-China relations. A new task force on U.S.-China policy has just released a report that says they must prioritize Southeast Asia, our part of the world, obviously, in American-China policy. Tell us a bit about this report. But for the context and, and for the benefit of our listeners, tell us who writes this report first and who is it for? Who's its audience? So this is a think tank in the United States. So you know, think tanks are a place where you have either you know thought leaders. They could be former government officials. It could be academics who come together who have the time to do a deep dive into a specific area and then make recommendations to the government about what's happening, what should be done what are various options. And so think tanks can be very, very influential um, in the United States. And you see a, a, the, the growth of think tanks in Asia as well. I mean, mm. you, you have a number of them in Singapore. You have an, a number of them in China that are rising in prominence and becoming more influential. And so this think tank is from the Asia Society, um, and they have a specific center on U.S.-China relations. Uh, so this is uh, the think tank that that, that drove this along with two universities, uh, UC San Diego and, and, and George Washington. And, um, and so what this, and, and this is a, a U.S.-China you know, focus, but it says for U.S.-China that Southeast Asia is critically important to how the U.S. is going to have its relationship with China, how the U.S. is going to be able to compete with China, and that the U.S. is not paying enough attention to Southeast Asia and needs to do so. I mean, one of the key findings for the region or the Southeast Asian region is to be consistent in the U.S. approach to the region. And it feels like, you know, U.S. have a different idea on what kind of ties they want. China obviously has a different idea as well. I mean, we've already seen um, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi. He embarked on a trip this week to the region, including Singapore. So is this, does this put Southeast Asia in a tough spot in choosing who to have a relationship with? Is it the U.S. or China? 
Well, it, 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 what the, it, it's a tough spot, but the answer is it wants both. And that's what you Southeast Asia's answer should be. It wants good relations with both the U.S. and with China, um, and that China has advantages certainly when it comes to Southeast Asia. You could say in, in Singapore uh, in particular, uh, geographic proximity is obviously the, the most important advantage it has. It's China's huge economic footprint and the trade between um, China and Southeast Asia is massive and growing. And so China has all these advantages. And what this report walks through is what are those advantages and what is it the, the U.S. needs to do? Um, it has certain advantages and it needs to take it, it advantage of, of those and then it needs to strengthen its weaknesses. Hongbin, they need to listen to this guy, Steve Oaken. He's been saying this on this show for years. You're ahead of the game, my friend, as always, ahead of the game. Okay, speaking of games, a musician, this is unbelievable, a musician named Dustin Ballard, who already wins an award for having the best name, Dustin Ballard, he's made news this week by putting Johnny Cash, the late, great Johnny Cash, with Barbie Girl. Tell us what happened first, Steve. Well, I, I am a... I, I, I'm a big Johnny Cash fan. I don't know if I'd say I'm an aficionado, but I, I do like Johnny Cash. I listen to Johnny Cash. I like the new his newer stuff, which, of course, is 20 years old now. Uh, but, like, the song Hurt, uh, the, the remake he did of Hurt is just one of my Stunning. favorite songs Great of song. all time. Great song. Unbelievable how good that is. And I, so, so I am a Johnny Cash fan. I listened to so Neil after you sent me the, this article um, where this musician uh, recreated, or not recreated, created a, a Johnny Cash singing the song Barbie Girl uh, using you know, his, his voice, but then used AI to supplement it. I thought it was Johnny Cash. So did I. It was terrific and he took i mean this guy was obviously a huge johnny cash fan he took the song uh, i think it was it was Folsom uh state prison uh or Folsom prison blues um and he he took that recording of it he based his song on that used words out of that where johnny cash was talking to the audience i think sampled probably the applause because this was live at Folsom state prison this recording it's perfect mm. perfect i know and so the I was going it to just, say, it, how terrified should we be, though? Because I've heard similar technology being used to turn John Lennon songs into Paul McCartney songs. There's Paul McCartney singing John Lennon songs. I could go on and on. It's a bit of fun now, but we all know what the serious implications are, Steve. But, you know, is, is that what I probably listened to like three or four times, and then it made me go back and listen to other Johnny Cash songs and then pick, up the, the, pick it up and see how good this version was and how clever it was. Um, because this was something that Johnny Cash was doing towards the end of his career, uh, you know, with the producer Rick Rubin. I mean, he did a version of Bridge Over Troubled Water. He did a version. He did that version of of Hurt. Uh, he, you know, and so this was this was aligned to what he would do is take these songs and make them his own. And he did that with this. And so, you know, part of me is like, well, this was just genius. And you appreciate that. And, and the AI, you know, made it better, but it was, it was the talent of the, of the, of the musician who recorded and came up with the idea. So I think this is like a, a good example of AI, but turning a John Lennon song into a Paul McCartney and vice versa, I don't see the genius in that. Mm. Obviously, you know, 
artists are now scrambling as well because AI can generate a new song, and we I feel like we don't even we can just go back to the olden days where we had legends singing and have new songs created in that way. But obviously, this also has political ramifications as well. But you know, like, can we expect more restrictions on AI and? How how severe is it? How what kind of restrictions can we expect on AI? Well, that's the, the you know, and you, you talked about the political hungbin, which is a, a great point to bring up because look. So if this is an example, and if I can't tell the difference, mm-hmm. and I couldn't between this version of Johnny Cash and 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 the original Johnny Cash, who's been dead for twenty years, what happens if you use AI to start faking political ads? Exactly, uh, and people don't know. Um, now, you could say, well, we're going to make a law that requires disclosure, but who's going to enforce it? How is it going to be enforced? So it, 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 it is frightening, especially when you start thinking, you know, this is, I think, a very clever use. It was, it was something that was extremely well done, but there was no harm intended from this. I mean, you could see he did it from a place of, of respect and, and joy. But what happens when it's used for malicious reasons? And so the only answer to this is we're going to have to train ourselves to be very skeptical of when something comes up like a political ad and say, was well, this real? Or if, if somebody's trying to scam you, you know, if somebody's recording, you know, the three of our voices right now, and then they can sample that and then use it to call somebody we know saying, hey, send me money. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm stuck in traffic in Manila and I can't get out. Can you, you know, can you pay me to this number, X number of dollars? And people do. I mean, those scams are already happening. So it's, it is going to be something that we're just going to have to become much more skeptical about when we see things and question, well, is this real or not? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I want to see Johnny Cash singing Gangnam Style. <laughs> that's, that's what we need, Steve. That's what the world needs right now. I can't think of any other song. Can you that Johnny Cash should sing and bring joy to the world? I mean, I don't know how you tap Barbie Girl. I mean, it's perfect timing. <laughs> But it just, the juxtaposition is perfect. So it is just, he, he, I hear, look, I hear Johnny Cash sing anything. He's, that voice is, is just so unique. Brilliant. So unique. Steve Oaken, aficionado hey. of Barbie Girl. Can I get my one movie thing? Go ahead, very quick. Join the conversation. So just quickly, just say, one, Neil, you can be an annoying old man and be right at the same time, which you are in this case. Right? Thank you, you very much. As always, my friend, it's been an absolute pleasure. And see you in the studio next week. Take care, my friend. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.